good. Hey, welcome to Four Corners. My name is Ben. I want to welcome you to the first sermon in our kickoff series called Blurred Lines, getting clarity on what God's Word has to say about love and dating and marriage and sex. And like Pastor Greg said, uh, over the next few weeks, we're calling these PG-13. What this means is parents, you guys make a decision about whether or not you want your kids to be in this room with you. We're going to talk from God's Word. Our goal isn't to be scandalous. Our goal isn't to be provocative. But it's to deal with the subject that's already happening all around the world. Literally, all around my kids' life, it's happening. It's happening on television. It's happening in school. It's happening in music. You can't get away from it. In fact, all of us in the room are in some way a direct product of the subjects that we're going to be talking about. And the culture isn't silent. And the culture has a message. And we do around here what we always do. We're going to do what we always do, which is open up God's Word and get clarity Take God's Word seriously on a subject that people are already talking about. And so today, I want to talk with you about dating, relating, and fornicating. Dating, relating, and fornicating. They rhyme, so you know it's going to be a good message, all right? I want to talk to you about these subjects, but, I, but before we get rolling, I, I want to kind of set us up for the message series in general. <clears throat> see, see, here's our heart as a church for you. We want you to have great relationships. Now, that's not an idea we came up with. That's in God's word. It was God's idea to put together a man and a woman in a permanent, lasting, loving relationship called marriage. It was God's idea to put together the family where kids grow up under the umbrella of that kind of loving, lasting relationship called marriage, and they get to observe, hopefully, what it looks like when two imperfect people come together and do life together over a long period of time. And they get to watch them be human, operating grace, try to deal honestly with truth, and at the same time, love each other. And as a church, we want nothing more for you than for you to have a relationship with God that is vibrant and alive, and a relationship with other people that is vibrant and alive and life-giving to you. And we, just, we don't want to just hope that for you, and we don't want to just pray that for you. We want to talk about it. We want to come to a place like this, one of the few places left in the world. The church is one of the few places left in the world where you can still have honest and open conversations about very deep and important subjects and pull the veil back, and not just come with our own biases and our own proclivities and our own ideas, but open up a book we call the Bible that is God's gift to us and discover God's heart on the matter. See, one of, one of the lies of our culture is that somehow God wants to rob you and me of all joy in life. He wants to take all the happy stuff and sprinkle guilt over it, so that if you participate in the stuff that brings you pleasure, then what God wants you to do on the back end of that is to feel bad. Now, culture has propagated this lie when it comes to the subject of love and marriage and relationships and sex. It's propagated this lie that somehow God's just a cosmic killjoy. But nothing could be further from the truth. When you read in the pages of the Bible, the episodes of people's lives as they lived lives a whole lot like you and I do, finding love, struggling in relationships, 
having to exercise a lot of grace, hearing hard truths, coming to terms with the fact that there are imperfect people in their lives that they're doing life with and the pain often that's associated with it, with that. But when you read those stories in the Bible, there becomes an overarching theme that it, it gets more and more clear as you read that the God behind these stories wants our relationships to be loving and life-giving and happiness-producing, lots of laughter and joy. But it doesn't sugarcoat it like, again, a lot of our culture does. It doesn't sugarcoat it and give us a fairy tale impression of what relationships should be like so that it can be summed up in a 90-minute movie, maybe a made-for-TV lifetime movie, so it can be summed up in that way with, with some, you know, Nice little beginning, some conflict in the middle, and then a quick and tidy little cleanup at the end that leaves you grabbing the tissues, wiping your eyes, getting rid of the tears. That's not the way God has designed it. Although our culture likes to pretend that that's the way relationships happen. There's always a, a neat and tidy little thing at the end that can make it all better. Now, when you look at God's word like we're going to over the next five weeks, including today, when you look at God's word, what you discover, rather than neat and tidy little answers, you discover profound, deep truths. Imp impressive, practical truths that help guide us along a, well, the sometimes turbulent journey of relationships. That guides us, that helps us avoid the landmines and the sharp turns and going off the cliff or ending up in a ditch, instead helps us stay more in the middle. The image of the road is very much the image that I want to put in your mind today. That there is this road of life, and it's enjoyed deeply when we have relationships that are valued by us and we're valued by other people. There's this road, this relational road we go down. And there are challenges along the way, steep inclines, and pretty, pretty aggressive drops sometimes, and sharp turns, and potholes and ditches, and mountainsides. But along with us in the car as we're traveling down the road, there's an awful lot of wisdom that's available to us. Wisdom that we don't have to come up with on our own. Wisdom that's presented in the form of story in the Bible, presented in the form of specific statements of what to do and not do, presented in principle form, in the examples of people, in the teachings of Jesus. And, and this wisdom, this information, very much becomes like a map, helping us navigate all those goofy things in the road and hopefully end up at the place that God wants us to end up with anyway, which is loving life-giving, joy-producing relationships. So, if you're in the room today and you're married, over the next few weeks, including today when I mostly direct at single people, if you're married in the room today, what we're going to talk about to you, you're going to know, if you've been married for any length of time at all, you're going to know intuitively it's applicable. Now, you may not agree with anything I say, but you're going to agree that the content, the, the general subjects we're dealing with, it's something that is real, important, relevant to marriage. If, if you're not married in the room, I, I beg you, pay attention. 
pay attention. Even if you don't think you're ever going to be married, you've given up on marriage. You were married, but you're not married anymore, and now you're done. Even if you've given up on marriage, pay attention. Because these principles around marriage and relationships, they're broadly applicable. Not just to the marriage, but to friendships and to brother and sister relationships and parent relationships to your parents. Relational principles are, are just that. They're, they're broadly applicable. And, and, and if you listen, I think, with an open heart, no matter where you are in the marriage scale, if you listen with an open heart, I, I think what you're going to discover from God's Word is some food for thought. At least I hope we do that, give you some food for thought. But beyond that, I think you might get some clarity to see the road better, to help you navigate better, to move forward in, in, in a more clear and direct way. So with that said, what I want to start with is I want to start talking a little bit about dating. And I want to share with you a myth that I've observed as a pastor and as a high school teacher that is propagated and widely believed. It's not true, although you see this message everywhere. And it goes something like this. If I meet the right person, then everything will be all right. If I meet the right person, then everything will be all right. Now, I kind of like this myth. I like it because it's the thing that gives impetus to songs and, and to movies. I mean, a lot of times the conflict in the movies that my wife likes and I kind of go along with, they're, they're around this idea that some guy or some girl sees, encounters someone, and that's their, you ready for the word, soulmate. And yet some force, nature, some other person, some you know, internal emotional struggle is keeping them from connecting. And the movie revolves around this conflict between that hero or heroine and, and their struggle to connect with their soulmate. And by the end of the movie, you grab the tissues, you're wiping your eye, you're crying, and you know then, of course, you got your money's worth at the theater. Right? And so, so I, I kind of like this lie, but it, but it very much is a lie that if you protract out the implications of believing this lie, and you really think about it, you, you'll discover, I believe, that this lie produces some real damage. Produces some real damage. See, here's the challenge. I've done, I, I, I've had hundreds of conversations with married people over the last 25 years. I, I am married. I've got my own experiences. I've heard from hundreds of others. I've had the opportunity to deal directly and honestly with high school students who begin mirroring and parroting and internalizing and thinking about the marriage that they see at home. So from a lot of different angles, I've had the opportunity to see marriages. Here's something I've discovered about marriage. and You can think about this, you don't have to agree with me. It's, it's, I've discovered there's no such thing as a problem marriage. There isn't. What happens is something a little bit more... Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's even a little bit more challenging. It's not so much that there's a problem marriage, it's that two people who have problems get married. You ever notice that? Now, now see, the, the challenge in, in my marriage is for a long time, I thought that Jill and I got married, and there was one person that had a problem and got married. And of course, it was me, because I'm humble, and I accepted full responsibility from day one in my marriage. No, that, that, of course, that didn't happen. No, I thought it was her. And, and for a long time, you know, she thought it was me. And, and, and our marriage has begun to move forward when we both have acknowledged it. She was not perfect. I wasn't perfect. She had faults. I had faults. 
there was some selfishness in her, unbelief. You know my wife, that might be hard to believe. And there was a lot of it in me. And we brought those problems from our life before we knew each other into our marriage. And what existed in our lives in seed form took full expression in our marriage. And it's not so much that we had a problem marriage or even problems in our marriage. We had problems in us that took full form. And there was a time when I was young and dinosaurs roamed the earth that I believed that what I needed to do was find the right person. And if I did, all of my insecurities and loneliness, my quest for purpose, all of that would become clear and be realized in one moment when I discovered who the right person was for me. And I hate to admit this to you, but this is an honesty zone. This is a truth zone. There have been moments after my marriage when I stood in front of God and other people and my wife and I said, I do to her that I thought maybe I hadn't found the right person. And that if I would find the right person who clearly wasn't her, then maybe then everything would be all right. Now the myth of if I find the right person, everything will be all right, and it's corollary lie. If everything's not all right, maybe I don't have the right person. Well, that idea is not supported in the scriptures by God's wisdom at all. And I don't think it plays out in my experience, so it's subject to just been, although I've heard other people much more wise than me echo these ideas, I don't think that that lie is, is carried forward in a helpful way, is, is reinforced in a helpful way in the experience of dozens of marriages that I've observed up close and personal. In fact, I think there's a, another way of looking at this idea of the right person that makes dating so much more helpful and so much more productive and sets you up for so much more of what God's heart for you is in relationships anyway, which is loving, lasting, life-producing, joy-producing, lots of laughter in your marriage, in your relationship kind of thing. And here's the truth then. If the lie is, if I meet the right person, then everything will be all right. Here's the truth I want us to focus on for just a moment. If you want, if I want real success in our relationship, here's the key. Become the person who the person you're looking for is looking for. Now that's deep, all right? That's deep. That tells you I'm smart, all right? And when I can put together phrases that are a bit confusing, it means I'm theologically deep and I can speak over people's heads, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm being facetious. I, I want to I play this out for you. Here's how this truth became more clear to me. A, few, a couple years ago, I was chatting with, with a lady, a, a young lady, and she was telling me about the exchange that she had with her mother. And when she said these words, she shared this, ex, this experience she had with her mother. It, it brought clarity to me in, in, in a way I, I hadn't experienced up to this point. And, and I want to I share it with you. She said that she came home one day from a particularly uh, ugly date. It, it wasn't good. It was a waste of time, and she didn't enjoy it. And she, she was talking with her mom. She was like, why do I always seem to end up with the loser, right? Why do I always end, seem to end up with the bonehead? And so her mom just kind of listened to her talk a little bit about the challenges she had had over the last several years trying to find the right guy. And 
date the right guy, and in her case, hopefully marry the right guy. And one of those poignant moments that, 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 that moms know how to do so well, dads, I, at least I tend to mess these moments up, mom spoke some truth into this girl's life that at first blush is going to sound very painful and difficult to hear. But, but when these words were spoken in love, these truthful words were spoken in love, it's like the scales, the blinders fell off the girl and she saw for the first time a truth that had to this point been elusive to her. Here, here's what her mom said to her. Honey, the kind of guy you're looking for isn't looking for a girl like you. The kind of guy you're looking for is never going to come your way with the way you're acting and carrying on and, 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 and engaging your dating relationship. The guy you're looking for isn't looking for a girl like you. So when the girl's telling me this story, I went, whoa, mom of the year. Ugh, painful to hear that. I mean, can you imagine your mom saying to you, the person you're looking for isn't looking for a person like you? So, so I said to her what I often say to a person when I don't know what else to say. Well, what do you think about that? Because <laughs> I didn't know what to say, you know. And so what do you, what do you think about that? Um, I learned that in counseling class somewhere. And um, she said, well, well here, here's, here's the thing, Ben. She said, it hit me for the first time that, that I have a responsibility if I want this kind of person and, and so she, she unpacked it. We'll unpack it in just a minute, the kind of person she really wanted, not like the people she was actually engaging with. If I want a person like that, then there's, there's a responsibility on me to carry myself in such a way that I'm more likely to attract a person like that. And I realized, she said, imagine the clarity and the self-honesty here. I realized that the way I had been carrying myself, the way I'd been talking, communicating, engaging, I was never going to attract the kind of person that deep down I really wanted to have. I really wanted to have a relationship. Like, the kind of person that I, that I really wanted to engage. And, and, and as she's sharing with me this story, my mind raced back to, to an episode in my own life when my, my youth pastor said to me, what kind of woman do you want, Ben? I wasn't married. I was 13, 14, 15 years old. What kind of woman do you want ultimately to end up with? And I started with all the important qualities, measurements of her body, that, that's where I started. That was my go-to place. And so he listened and chuckled a little bit. And he said, that's good. So, so all right, so we got, the, we got our outside defined. What about like on the inside? What kind of person do you want? So this is where I waxed eloquent and deep, and I described this wonderful woman who had these certain skills and abilities and talents. And uh, basically, it was, it was Wonder Woman. Um, literally, Linda Carter. Remember Wonder Woman from the... That, that's literally the, the character that I wanted. You know, it could save the world, save me, that sort of stuff. So he looked at me, and, and remember, this is happening in my mind as, as I'm hearing her talk. He looks at me and he says, all right, so you got the list for what you want. What do you think the list should be for what you offer? Like, what's your list for you that you're going to bring to the table. We know what you want her to bring to the table. What are, what are you going to bring to the relationship? What's your list? Well, turning the tables like that, when I was 13, 14 years old, that was eye-opening to me. Again, it was one of those poignant moments where he was able to say something to me in such a way that I could actually hear it. 
left a lasting impression. I heard echoes of that in the story of the young girl whose mom said to her, well, the way you're acting, you're never going to attract a guy like the guy you want. Less than there being a Mr. Right or a Miss Right, much, much less than that. Much less than the lie that says if you find just the right person, then all your relationship stuff's going to go right. And if, you, if it's not going all right, you haven't found the right person. Is this idea. That if you want real success in relationships, then you and I have to work on becoming ourselves the person who the person we're looking for is looking for. Let's just tease this out for just a second more. Ladies, you want a guy who when you get married, stand before God, each other, your family, your friends, and you look at each other and say, I do until death do us part. You want a guy who actually takes that vow seriously. A one-woman man, the Bible would describe it. A man with fidelity and faithfulness. If that's the kind of guy you want, rather than just wishing and hoping and hoping and praying for Mr. Right to walk into your life, and when that happens, chemistry ensues, and you know you're in love because you have chemistry. We talked for hours. We sat up all night talking. I can't stop looking at her. I can't keep my hands off of her. We have chemistry. Rather than hoping for chemistry, if you want a guy who values faithfulness and fidelity, what kind of woman do you need to be now to open the door to have a relationship long-term with a man who deeply values faithfulness and fidelity? So here's a truth that we don't want to accept. That your present how you're acting, your values, how you're carrying yourself, your present will show up in your future. You're not going to get away from it. In fact, your present is connected to your past already. Profound stuff. Can you, are you following me? All right. Your present is connected to how you carried, acted, engaged, talked, spent time with in the past has had a direct impact on the very present you're living. And the very present you're living is going to have an impact on how you live the future. You can't control other people. You can't make people do what you want them to do. Some people try. But what you can do is set yourself up to attract the kind of values that you really want. And so in one sense, it's completely illogical to think, I want a man that when we say I do will be faithful and true and have fidelity, not have a wandering eye. I saw something, I don't like to comment too much on culture explicitly, name people and that sort of thing, but I was watching a, a, a music awards program recently, and, um, and, and I watched something, apart from just the, the sexiness of the whole thing, I watched a woman on stage who her husband describes this way, that she's bootylicious. Um, I watched her gyrate and, and move on stage on a chair while her husband and a couple hundred million people looked upon her activity and I saw him like beaming with pride. Now, now in and of itself, I don't know what you think about all that, but here's, here's the thought I had. Here's a guy who's married to this woman 
And he has put her, and she has put herself on display for the entire world to see. Not just her talent, and not just her formliness, but a very sexualized presentation of her. And the beaming face that he had, and the pride that he had in her, was this eroticness that she was displaying for the entire world to see. I don't know what their marriage is going to be like long term. My experience has shown that healthy relationships that last a lifetime, that, that linger, that produce joy over the life, not just in the moment, not just short-sighted joy. You get, husbands don't take joy in displaying their wife's sensuality. When I was teaching high school, I saw a, a modified, lower-class form of the same thing, where some guy would date some girl, and it wasn't enough that she was beautiful on the outside. He had to display it. And, and, and it was as if she was less important as a person, as an individual, as a, as a mind, as a person with a soul, then she was important because somehow she said of him, and he was able to say of himself when he displayed her, that he had the ability to attract that kind of hotness, and isn't he awesome, and every guy wants to be him. At least in his own mind, that's the way it worked out. Now, going back to my principle that your present is, reflected, is a reflection of your past, and your present will be reflected in your, in your future. I, I don't know how this is going to play out, and I'm not wishing a bad relational... Uh, mess on anybody, but I, I wonder how, how that relationship that I saw, what should have been bedroom activity at best, displayed in front of a couple hundred million people, I, w- I wonder how long it's going to be till somebody else comes along with the right moves. And, and what I would love to say to the lady is, if you really, really want a relationship that lasts, that produces joy over your lifetime, I don't think you're going to find it acting that way because when you act that way you're only going to attract men like that and men like that don't keep their eyes to themselves and in some form i've had that conversation with dozens of high school students dozens of people in our church in one form or another that the the way you carry yourself and engage now will have an impact on the future and the best way to manage this the best way to understand this is is that If what you really want is a loving, lasting relationship, the best way to do that, the the best step you can take is to become the person who you, who who the person you're looking for is looking for. And to accept the truth that that young lady heard from her mom. You're never going to find the kind of guy you want acting like this. So we've heard the myth and we talked a little bit about the truth. Let me talk to you about how you apply this truth. Make a list of the right qualities, not for the person you want, but for you. What qualities do you want to embody? What qualities do you want to bring to the table? Make a list about the external stuff, the the way you want to look and the kind of body you want to have. That's fine. The kind of athletic prowess you're going to have, intellectual capacity you're going to have, degree you're going to have. But beyond that, talk a little bit about some of those internal qualities. This is an exercise I encourage everybody who's dating to do. 
long before you go down the wish list of what you want, thinking that you're some child um, before Christmas, making the Christmas list that you want. I think in, to some degree in a, an act of selfishness, long before you, you go down that road, think about what you want to bring to the table. There's a passage in your Bible that I consistently go to when I think about the qualities I want to embody, the qualities I, I want my kids to embrace for themselves, knowing that if they'll walk these qualities out, that just by walking these qualities out, they're going to attract certain kinds of people and other kinds of people are going to be repelled from them. I want to take you to one of those rich, deep passages that's very easy to understand, but it's rich and deep because it's incredibly difficult to live out. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in your Bible it's called the love chapter. The entire chapter is rich. Almost every wedding I do, I refer to, to every wedding I perform, I, I refer to this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to read you two verses, verse 4 and 5 making a list of the qualities you want to bring to the table. If you're dating, giving up on dating, marriage is struggling, marriage is great. Here's here's something we can do. Here's what the Bible says. Love, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And the entire chapter is full of this expanded definition of love. When you take the time to think about the qualities you want to bring to the relational table, you've done the most practical thing you can do to set yourself up for what God wants for you. Long lasting, life-giving, vibrant, joy-producing, full-of-laughter kind of relationship. Whether you're dating, married, this is true for parents and kids. This list in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, is incredibly profound. What if you took 20 minutes of honesty with yourself, sat in front of the proverbial mirror, proverbial mirror and asked yourself these questions? Am I patient. Love is patient. Am I patient? I wonder what bringing patience to the table relationally would do for my marriage, for my dating. Am I kind? How much envy is at work in my life? How much boasting is at work? How much pride is at work in my life? How much do I honor others as opposed to seeking honor for myself? Am I self-seeking, self-serving, self-oriented? Or am I able to lay aside that immaturity and do life a different way? Am I easily angered? Do I keep a record of wrongs? See, see, more than having a list, if you're dating, of what you want, here's the best way, in my opinion, to make sure that you're dating, your courtship, and long-term, your marriage, and even the way you relate to your kids, and ultimately your legacy— as a person, when, when you're dead and they're talking about your, at your funeral, here's the kinds of things that will make the biggest difference. Rather than the list that you want and what you're going to get out of life and out of that relationship, the list of what you're going to bring, that's incredibly powerful. When you look at the heroes in the Bible who did relationships right, 
They embodied these kinds of things. And when you look at the, the people in the Bible who were given as, as an example of what not to do, they were the opposite of these kinds of things. When you look around in life at the relational chaos, they're the opposite of these kinds of things. When you look at the kinds of people that truly have a lasting relationship over time, they weren't perfect, but somehow they managed their imperfection, and she managed hers, and he managed his, and together they did life beautifully together. They embody these kinds of things. It's the very thing I want for my kids. I can't control other people. I can't even control them. But as a parent, I want to help them understand that they can bring to the table values and traits and qualities. And in that activity, in that engagement, in that maturity, in that growing up, in that spiritual depth, they are taking control of the very thing that God wants for them. Loving, lasting, long-term, joy-producing, vibrant relationships. This is our Heavenly Father's heart for us. And He's shown us, to a large degree, exactly what we need to do to get that out of life. But self-deception runs rampant, doesn't it? I mean, at least it does in my life. It's incredibly difficult. You know, the only myth in dating isn't that if I find the right person, everything's going to be all right, so I just need to keep going around and around until I find the right person. When I find the right person, we'll have chemistry. When we have chemistry, I know we're in love, and once we're in love, everything's going to be fine. That's not the only lie that exists out there. There are all kinds of lies, relationships. So let's just kind of move on from dating and talk about a lie as relationships, general relationships. Here's a myth, a relational myth. That my romantic relationships, my, my romantic relationship is my number one priority. You are the most important thing in the world to me. You're the most important thing to me. Now, for the next few minutes, everything I just said up to this, whether you're a believer or not, it, it, you, can, you can benefit from it. This next comment is kind of catered to people that are already following Jesus. Now, you may get something from it if you're not following Jesus, uncertain about Jesus. We're glad you're here, by the way. We built this church in part so that you could come, engage honestly, not be pressured, take your own time, think about faith, still be accepted. All that's good. But, but for the follower of Jesus, the myth that says, you, this person on earth, you're my number one priority. It sounds good. It sounds right. It sounds selfless. But I think ultimately it'll bring chaos to your relationship. See, for the follower of Jesus, here's the truth. For the believer, your relationship with God is the most important thing. Your relationship with God is the most important thing. I want to make another statement about marriage. You don't have to agree with me. It's just my subjective experience. When I have discovered and encountered and talked with, with people about their marriage problems, the problems in their marriage, the problems in themselves that they brought to their marriage, most of the time, maybe not every time, but most of the time, what's at the core of their marriage difficulty isn't a marriage difficulty. It's a spiritual problem. Most of the time, their priorities are out of whack. When Jill and I have veered off course, nine times out of ten, it isn't because we just had some miscommunication thing going on. That happens sometimes. It wasn't just because we were like two ships in the night, busy and passing and not even... Well, it happened a little bit. Most of the time, at the core of our marriage issues was a spiritual problem. And she needed to pray. Uh, and I did too. I did too. I needed to pray, to pray too. Uh, we, we needed to take seriously our relationship with God. And I see young couples, dating couples, early marriage... 
They're consumed with that other person. And I get it. I don't even know that that's wrong. I just know that if for the believer, if the first priority in your life isn't Jesus, you protract, you pro- protract that out, project that out over the next decade of your life with Jesus not being first in your life, and it begins to do something on the inside. It begins to, to mess up other priorities. And other things begin to creep into your life that bring chaos, not just to your heart, not just to your spirit, but even to your relationships. See, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, that girl isn't the most important thing in your life. At least she shouldn't be. He isn't the most important thing. And when you compromise the most important thing, your relationship with Jesus for him or for her, you're headed for chaos. God's dream of a vibrant, lasting, loving, joy-producing, full-of-laughter kind of relationship for you is not going to be realized. It's going to be elusive, always past your reach. Because for the believer, putting Jesus first. So in my marriage, in my life, the way it's supposed to look is God, my wife, my kids, and everything else. And anytime I get those things out of sorts, I lose priority, I get internal chaos. And it will just be a matter of time until that internal chaos begins to manifest on the outside. No matter what relationship you're in, here's a a, a good way to think about, a, a kind of good, again, proverbial mirror to engage yourself with. Who really is the number one in your life? For some of us, if we were honest, here's what we'd have to say. I am. (laughs) I'm number one in my life. The truth is, if I look at my actions, behavior, my words, I'm number one. That's when I ask you in pure Dr. Phil kind of ways, how's that going for you? You want to know how it's going for you? Ask your best friend. Ask your mom. Ask your dad. Ask your brother. Ask your sister. Do you see a lot of selfishness in me? Or, Or it's that guy or it's that girl. And you may, that may be fully satisfying for you now. But for the follower of Jesus, I just submit to you that long term, that's not going to work. So what what do you do? What do you do here? So here's a way we can begin to apply the truth I'm talking about. It's going to sound a little radical for some folks, but what if you committed to 21 days of prayer beginning today with this one sentence prayer every day? God, today show me what I need to do to make you the number one priority in my life. And give me the courage to change what I need to change. What if in the next 21 days, every day, you got up, and in the first couple hours of your morning, you said this prayer, God, today, show me what I need to do to make you the number one priority in my life. For some of you who are following Jesus, and your relational life is a mess, and there's always drama and always chaos, can I just be honest with you? Here's what's wrong. Jesus isn't number one for you. He is, or she is, or that thing is. And maybe it's gone on so long you actually feel trapped and like in a cage. Maybe there's like even an addiction around that stuff. I really think that an honest engagement of this prayer and a willingness to make some changes can make a difference. God, today show me what I need to do to make you number one priority in my life. And then give me the courage, the boldness, the strength, the fortitude. God, just help me to change what I need to change. Matthew 6.23 says this, or 6.33 says this. But seek first God's kingdom and his right way of living, right way of thinking, right way of doing. 
Seek God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. That's why we put out this small groups calendar in hopes that a lot of you would engage small groups. Get into God's word. It's, there are a lot of us are doing gospel projects around here. It's right there in your catalog. You can read about it. I encourage you, if, if you're like me and you need to grow in your relationship with God, it might be the exact tool you need to really begin making the Lord truly the Lord in your life. I want to buzz through this next one literally in a minute and a half, and over the next few weeks, I'll tease it out a little bit more. I talked about dating, relating. I want to talk about fornicating for just a moment. You might expect a church to go in this direction, but I I want to get you to think about something for just a minute. Here's the myth, the fornicating myth in our culture. You ready? It's just too many for me to list. (laughs) I can't can't even give you one, right? There's hundreds. There's hundreds. I love her. I love him. It's just sex. It doesn't really matter. It's just our bodies. There's all kinds of ways that, that people end up here. I mean, chemistry does kick in, and you go so far, and you can't. I, I get it. I don't even want to focus on the, the downside. I just want to kind of focus on a truth here that, that ultimately, I think, gets to the heart of the matter. Here it is. God's plan when it comes to sex is chastity before marriage. That means no sex. And fidelity after marriage. So it comes down to this if you're a follower of Jesus. Do you believe that God's wisdom on the matter is the right thing? Do you believe God knows more than you? That's one way to look at it. And that would give you certain results. And it's it's worth asking. But here's another way. What do you think is God's heart in this standard? Like, Like, seriously. Why do, you, why do you think God says no sex before marriage and only sex with the person you're married with after marriage? Why does he do that? Do you believe the culture that it's just to rob you of joy? That it's Christians' duty to produce guilt on people? Or could it be that the heart of God on the matter is that he wants you to have loving, lasting, lifelong relationships that produce joy over the span of your lifetime, not just in your moment. And he knows that sex has a profound way of getting in there and messing up that dream that he has for you. And in hopes that you could live the dream he has for you, he gives you a very clear standard. No before And afterwards, only with one. Rather than convincing you this is right today, I want you to think about why he would say that. And I want to offer one truth for some folks that are maybe struggling with this that aren't married. What what if you just thought about this for just a moment as a way of applying this this truth, that that, that God's standard is, is clear? What if you quit dating for six months? And by dating, I mean all that goes along with it, all the stuff that you might be doing in the dating. And you take six months to set firmly your personal boundaries and to grow deeper as a person and deeper as a believer. There's a passage in the Bible in 1 Timothy where Paul writes to this young pastor telling him how to interact with people. And there's a line in there that caught my eye this week. I want to share it with you. So he says, In all the dealings in the church, Timothy, you young, single guy, you pastor, you young single pastor. That, that sounds like a problem for me right there to begin with. So, so Paul must have thought so too. So he writes Timothy two letters and says, don't screw this up, all right? He says, here, here, here's Timothy. Don't rebuke an older man harshly. So somebody that's older than you, don't be harsh with them. When they need corrected, you're younger, you be gentle, all right? But exhort him 
as if he were your father. Then he says, and then treat the younger men, people like you, treat them like your brother. Treat the older women with the respect you'd show a mom. But, but here's the principle. And treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Timothy as a pastor. Now, now he's talking to a pastor, but I think there's a broader principle here. Men, treat, treat the women as your sister with absolute purity. Not, not as, a, as, a, as a trophy, not as a, a girl to display on a stage for 200 million people to view. And if it's not that selfish, not even as your own conquest, not even as your own, your own anything, as your sister, and have the purest heart towards her. If this is a struggle for you, men, or let's flip it around for women, if purity is a struggle for you, what if you just took six months and you said, I'm stopping, and I want to think through, I want to consider what I need to do here. I want to grow my own boundaries more clearly. I'm tired of the chaos that breaking this standard is doing. And I want to grow deeper as a follower of Jesus, deeper as a person. Get rid of the clutter that, that sex and sexuality has brought in. These are just three myths, three truths, three applications I want you to think about. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive down deep into many of them. We're going to open up longer passages where we think about what God's Word has to say. And I know that some of you, just in the little bit that we've talked about today, if you were to apply it to your life, it may take a while but God's dream for you of loving, lasting relationship that lasts a lifetime, that produces joy over the span of your life, not just in a moment, it's going to be more of a possibility. It's going to be more in your grasp. And the challenge is, how are you going to apply? How are you going to apply? Around here, we don't like to just hear God's truth. We like to actually move forward with it. So we use our Connect card. In fact, would you go ahead and grab that thing out? that pastors Matt and Greg had you fill out earlier, your Connect card. We're going to take a few steps together. I spoke in my message about those that are in a relationship with Jesus and those that aren't. And I hope that no matter where you are in the spiritual spectrum, you've got something out of today and something that will help you ultimately, I believe, experience God's heart for you. But my, 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 my primary agenda for you today, if I, if I have one, comes from my desire that you have a relationship with Jesus. For he forgives your sin, and becomes the leader of your life. So next step A, every week for us, right there on the front of the card, looks like this, that I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. You know, churches are known for talking about sex, but at the end of the day, it's not even really about that. It's about what place does Jesus have in your life. And if that's not right, apart from everything else, I'd like to give you an opportunity to make that right today. To look up to, to the heavens, if you will, and say to God, you're the Lord of the universe, but you've not been Lord of my life, and I'd like to change that today. The Bible makes it very clear how you do that. Long before you start making changes in your life, you just acknowledge, I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner. That's what the Bible calls you. And I'd like Jesus to forgive my sin, and I'm going to put my faith in him. I'm going to trust him to become the leader of my life. If you want to do that, why don't you check the box? In a moment, we're going to pray. I'm going to give you a chance to make things right with God and just acknowledge, I'm a sinner. God, forgive me become the leader of my life. Or how about next step B? You want to get baptized and go public with your faith? 
That's the beginning of your relationship. It's one of the first steps you take after you begin a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't mean you've got it all figured out or that your relationships are all good or that you're completely pure. It just means that you are beginning out fresh and clean with Jesus. Now, how about next step C? You want to join a small group? Put the number of the small group right from the catalog, right there on the thing, on the connect card, and somebody in our team will communicate with you, connect with you about that. And uh, it's a one-step sign-up, very easy to do. Or how about next step D? I'm going to do my best to attend all five weeks of Blurred Lines. I said, do your best. You may not be able to make them all, but if you can, go ahead and commit. And let's engage this topic no matter where you are. Let's engage it deeply and honestly with an open heart, willing to hear what God's Word has to say about something that impacts all of our lives. Or how about next step B, kind of a long one for us here. I love someone who would benefit from getting clarity on love, sex, dating, and marriage. And I'm going to invite him or her to join me next week, next Sunday, for week two of Blurred Lines. Hey, let's pray about what we talked about today, and then we'll close out our service together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy. God, we're talking about a subject today that has brought a lot of shame and guilt and condemnation. And yet that's not your heart. Your heart is for us to be free Your heart is for us to have joy over our lifetime. Your heart is for us to have loving, lasting, life-giving relationships. God, I pray as a church, as we go over the next few weeks, you would help us stay attuned to your heart, and you give us clarity, and you would give us boldness to change what we need to change. God, right now I lift up those people that are accepting you as their Lord and Savior for the very first time. They're acknowledging that they're a sinner. They're asking you to cover their sin and lead their lives. God, I pray for each person that knows someone that needs to come and engage this topic that would benefit from hearing your heart on the matters of love, sex, marriage, and dating. God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen.